Welcome to the Two Hip Podcast. This week's guest is a new friend, relatively speaking, compared to a lot of my other guests. I feel like I'm always saying old friend, old friend, everybody going back years. This person's relatively new. Still, I feel like I've known him a very long time. But nonetheless, he has been involved in a lot of stuff. Very fascinating work. He is a writer, a poet, and a, and a writer. I don't know if those are exclusive. Uh, he uh, he also is marketing director involved at uh, Swarthmore or Swarthmore College, depending how you were raised, I guess. And he's involved in writing a lot of different poems. He has a couple books. has been involved in reviews. He does readings. A lot of fascinating work that we're going to be able to dive into today, but of course he can explain all of that better than I can, as I always say. So without further ado, Fritz Ward. Thank you, Danton. <laughs> Happy to be here. Looking forward to chatting. Awesome. Thank you for letting me come to your house for this interview. Absolutely. You're welcome. <laughs> Hosting the podcast interview. So yeah, we're, all, we're getting all situated here, but why don't I just let you explain yourself. Explain yourself. The hostile segment where you explain you like you're on trial explaining yourself it's a, it's a hard thing to do actually <laughs> um so the uh the highlights fritz ward um i mean i think right now probably the thing that takes dominance is i'm uh, a parent to a six and a half year old daughter named freya so that takes up most most of my mental capacity um, and <laughs> of course. a lot of energy um i'm a poet um, although that does not pay the bills, surprisingly. No. Um, never thought it would, and, and that's playing out just the way I thought it would. <laughs> so I, uh, I do marketing for Swarthmore College for the advancement department and do a lot of writing and ghostwriting there, a lot of uh, crafting of emails and websites, um, direct mail pieces, those types of things. But uh, it's a good creative outlet and a, a wonderful institution. Um, I'll give them a little shout out. Their uh, men's basketball team just made the uh, national championship game. They, oh, wow, lost, nice. they, they lost it last night. Oh, but, oh. <laughs> but incredible, incredible accomplishment for them. So proud to be uh, working at Swarthmore. It's a great institution, a great place to, to spend my time and my professional hours. Wonderful. I mean, being involved in a school, no matter what your career path is and, or side careers or whatever you're juggling creatively, I think being involved in the school is a great thing because it just has so much access. You're like... You're constantly getting new ideas. Students are kind of refreshing how you feel. They're always like, I feel like it's just like a good feeling on a campus, right? It's definitely inspiring. Yeah. I mean, just seeing what the, the students are invested in. Social justice is a, a huge initiative at Swarthmore. So being inspired by not just their intelligence, because they are fiercely intelligent um, in the things they're accomplishing, but the kind of social issues that they're tackling and the passion with which they're tackling it. Um, it's a little easy, I think, as a an adult now and a parent <laughs> to drift away from those things a little bit and sometimes they feel a little less immediate when you're tied up and uh, figuring out uh, why your kid won't eat the chicken nuggets tonight. So. <laughs> right, right. Like the more <laughs> just basic right in front of you items. Yeah. Being involved in a college, it's a little bit of a different world at the same time. Like there, it, there's like a disconnect. Like they're, they're at one at one time, yes, they're very involved. But then the other hand, you're like kind of disconnected. But I, I, this is going back to your role specifically. How do you sell what I believe is like the most expensive liberal arts college in the country? <laughs> How do you pitch that to people? It's definitely not the most expensive liberal arts school <laughs> okay, in the okay, country. Okay. I mean, <clears throat> I don't have to sell it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> A lot of people apply, very, very elite. Um, but for the most part, the thing that attracts people to Swarthmore is that it's need blind. So any student that has the goods to get in um, can get in no matter what their financial need is. So we don't exclude anyone because they can't afford Swarthmore. So they look at your finances, but they look at that completely separately. And after they look to see if you have the goods to get in. And if you meet those requirements and they accept you, then they'll send your information on to financial aid. The financial aid will look at that and say, okay, you need a full ride. You need $20,000, you need $50,000, you need $70,000, you need $500, right. just depending where your financial situation is. Um, so in that essence, it's really about educating people about the institution so they realize that it's not outside their reach. And that way, I feel great about working there because it's not exclusionary in that way in terms of socioeconomic access. That's good. Yeah, I think that's probably a surprisingly rare thing, I feel like. It's like it should be very common to be need blind. It seems like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Why should we be segregating out people based on their, their uh, economic background? But there are not a lot of schools that are need blind. It is a very expensive endeavor. Um, 
most schools are tuition driven and once they reach their financial aid cap they have to stop mm -hmm. there are some schools that are financial aid sensitive um, but for the most part schools can only have so much financial aid to dole out and so once they reach that cap they have to stop so they have to be very careful with the way they distribute that we do it a very different way but that's in large case due to our small size and the the generosity of our past alumni honestly um, right. they've really made that possible and now it's sort of set up a name at, the, at this point it's a very known school yes um, among certain audiences <laughs> you'd be surprised how often somebody says Swarthmore is that that girls school in, in New York <laughs> and of course they're thinking of Skidmore um, <laughs> yes of course it's the so same so it, it, it's very well known in certain circles um, our admissions department does a great job of reaching out to areas of the country that are less knowledgeable about Swarthmore might not be on their radar reaching out to guidance counselors make them aware of the opportunities for their students um, but it's not as well known as you might think it is <laughs> <laughs> okay well, he, well you're here to preach to the world to, to my millions of listeners so okay so before we dive into the weeds about what you what you do what, you, what some of your creative outlets are as well and your um your political outlets i like to go to the segment the two hypocrisy two hypocrisy like the recapture for authenticity meant to be easy on humans hard on hipster bots and aside, as I think about it in the background, I think I was probably 14. This isn't the actual time I was a hypocrite, but it relates. Okay. <laughs> I think I was about 14. I just started trying to learn how to play an electric guitar. I was horrible at it. <laughs> um, I could play like the first three notes of the Smashing Pumpkins Today song, and that of was course. about it. Yeah. Um, but I had my amp. I had my crappy Fender Squire um, <laughs> white guitar, <clears throat> and I... Uh, I've actually figured out some lick that I just repeated a bunch of times and then recorded and then over top of it I sang some lyrics eventually um, and the lyrics were essentially we are all hypocrites just over and over and over <laughs> it's a little punk uh, a little screamy a little screechy but uh, clearly I was connecting to your hypocrite uh, oh, yeah, idea that we all fall into that <laughs> to a large degree the most meaningful way I was probably a hypocrite was probably to my sister when she was young like, like five and a half years apart. Is she older or younger? She's younger. So okay. She's five and a half years younger. And growing up, that was just enough that we were never really on the same page. Um, and I became more of like a third parent to her in a lot of ways, um, which is kind of a shitty thing to do <laughs> your younger sibling. Um, I don't know if it's your fault, though. Maybe it, maybe it was just like outside forces, or did you feel like you were like willingly like, I'm going to parent her? Um. I don't know why it took on that that dynamic. <laughs> I probably resented her because it felt like an only child for a while, right. and then you know, and she wasn't old enough to actually do things with me. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm gonna make you do what I want you to do. Pretty much, but you know, I'm probably a little too judgmental. You know, dismissive. You know, I, mean, I think everybody's a little frustrated by their younger sibling. No doubt about it. I think I was fairly hypocritical in the ways I judged her, considering you know when I left, I remember like yelling at her because I found cigarettes beneath her bed um, when I left for college which at this point she's like 13 and a half and of course you know a month later at college there I am you know smoking a clove cigarette and, try, and trying that out so um, I realized cloves oh man that was a, that was a moment in time yeah that my, my roommate yeah and I was like that a bad introduction I guess better than it smells better than the nicotine you know yeah um, the Marlboros but um, didn't really take to smoke <laughs> But yeah, like just those types of things where I felt very judgmental of someone I cared deeply about and tried to shape them what I thought was for the better, but not in the best way, and then engaged in similar behavior yeah. <laughs> shortly yeah. thereafter. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I can't even – I literally have journal entries that I've gone through <laughs> where in the same entry I will critique someone like, oh, so-and-so, you know, made out with this person. Like it was, it was all like all that stuff, like relationship oh, yes, drama yes. and like – physical you know sexual moments yep, in your yep. life where you're like you're trying to go to these different bases let's yep, say yeah, yeah. Uh, with someone and you're just being like really uptight about certain things like oh so and so did that with so so somebody else and i can't believe that i would never do that and then like the next line down i'm like so i was on a date with someone and i really wanted to do this like it's like i literally just critiqued this person in the same like the same journal entry i didn't even wait till the next entry so I completely I can, well, I can sympathize. I mean, sympathize hormones just 
yeah. They yeah. negate all logic. Yes. No, they just <laughs> just line edit that right out for you. <laughs> it's um, terrible. Yeah. So okay. So that, I, I think that's good though. But you have more to this. I, I'd say. I mean, the other hypocritical thing that probably happens almost on a daily basis is just having a kid. You're just like, don't do that. Stop that. <laughs> Why are you yelling at me? Why are you angry? And yet two minutes later, you are you are yelling at the kid or speaking with a stern voice. And you're like, oh, man. It's coming from me. Yes. this I see where this is coming. The reflection, like it's far more true than I ever hoped it would be. Despite oh. having read about it and being knowledgeable of it and knowing the psychology of it, it's right. still see it reflected back on you. You're like, oh, man, I'm such a hypocrite. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel it every day. And not even necessarily. I definitely catch that one now, too. Like where I where I'm I'm the one yelling and then I see them acting out in the same behavior. But I also have the moments where I know that I did something and I got away with it when I was little, or like Ooh. my mom wasn't even critical of something. You know, it could be something yep. silly. But then I see one of my kids do that and I'm just like, no, no, no. You know, I immediately jump and like helicopter in. Yeah, I, I just have to rewind and step back a little bit and realize, you know, everyone's entitled to make mistakes, especially when they're that young. Oh yeah, they just have no sense of it's all. Everything is a learning moment. Yeah. And the more we jump in too early, I feel like, it, yeah, it's just oh, like... We stunt them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt about it. We're already messing this up. <laughs> oh, I mean... <laughs> Day one. I mean, your mom and dad, they fuck you up. Yes, they do. I mean, like... I mean, famous mom, but... Um, every, everyone's going to give their kids something to talk about with a therapist, mm-hmm. you know? Our, yeah. our goal is to make the issues less severe, less life-altering than yeah. our parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, um, who is it? Daniel Tosh, who's never very uh, politically correct in his comedy, um, has a has a wonderful line. And say, say or think what you want about Michael Jackson, but he has a line, and this was years ago even he said this, Joe Jackson, that dad, like you want to you wanna push your kids so they have some creative angst. You know, you you want to you want to do some of that, but not so much that they molest children. Yeah, you know, a little too oh, far. Yeah. And he was saying this you know, years, years ago. ago. Yeah. So yeah. it's just one of those things, you know. And whether you believe it or not, there's a fine line with create creative. You you have to uh, yeah, you want to push kids and encourage them, but then also like being too pushy, then they rebel and they don't want to do anything. To a certain regard, you don't want to get involved in certain situations at all, which is very difficult. I mean, but then art. I mean, so much of art is a reaction against ways you've probably been screwed up by your parents right. or society in general. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you work out some of those issues and frustrations and visions and paths forward through the art you're making. Um, I'm not advocating for messing up our kids so they produce great art, <laughs> but <laughs> I guess it's a side effect Yeah, like of you, dealing with the world. Yeah, do you want like a cookie-cutter kid? Like, Could you even create a cookie-cutter kid, really, at if the you, end of the if day? If you tried too hard, you probably would screw that up and they'd probably go punk right they'd like they'd rebel <laughs> they'd be like or if you're trying to be too normal yeah then you go like super punk yes. like yes. oh, yeah i yeah. know all those kids where i met their their moms and i was like their mom is not punk at all she's like the most normal like pick, white picket <laughs> fences mom that you would ever imagine it was that was that the case for you you feel like i mean my, my family was pretty well on the surface we are pretty normal and boring <laughs> underneath oh man all kinds of stuff going on um <laughs> But, you know, I, I kept it pretty low-key and boring through high school. And then I got to college and... So the punk phase wait, didn't... I feel, it, I feel went, like went, that was late. I feel yeah, like I was no, expecting you to say, like, in no, high school. No, I went punk and goth in college okay, and okay. dyed hair and shaved heads and wore dresses and skirts and just... Just all that. Yep, yeah. yep. Full on. Just experimenting. Did I... I don't know if I ever told you this, but we had a, a skirt day... In our school years ago. Well, actually, hold on. Rewind a second. (laughs) There's no context. We used to have this group of kids who made like these silly holidays. And the really, they were like the goth punk kids, like the rebels. And so they created a day called Skirt Day, which on the surface, again, sounds like, oh, you want girls to dress in slutty skirts. Mm. But no, it was the guys were allowed to wear skirts that day. And they all wore the skirts and they were still fingertip length. You know, the, like the yeah, high school, oh, yeah, middle yeah, schools, yeah, whatever, yeah, you had to like have yep. like a certain length. Like we still abided by the rules. So technically, <laughs> we weren't like breaking Against any dress rules. code, yep. But it turned into this big rebellious thing and all these people that dressed up, I forgot because it was like over a weekend and they did it on a Monday. So of course, like I always forgot stuff over the weekend. But a bunch of my friends dressed up and did this. And by third period, we heard like, oh, so-and-so got sent, oh, wow. sent into detention and this person got sent. And then before you know it, they're just like, it's like this big cleansing of all of the kids <laughs> oh. who were wearing skirts that were oh, guys. Yep. 
and you know a handful of people that heard about it had gotten changed or they would like they would get changed out of it and so they felt like a suppressed group but at the end of the day the guys who organized it got suspended from school for wearing skirts oh wow and then this is the story should end there it's a terrible story yeah, that should just be over but then it turned into this thing where like a, this, this around the same time our local newspaper published a story on it which is, <laughs> is gigantic but it yep. was the same day that the columbia shuttle disaster happened. oh and our story was the front page no. and the shuttle disaster was like page seven. Oh, some some young men in skirts and, and I was there's like, people dying are you kidding me oh and then to make that even even worse to trample on the memory of those people a few years later they made an mtv episode of that show that was the pranks and scandals yes MTV oh, oh, pranks and scandals yep. from years ago yep and that they like made a whole episode about the skirt thing like skirt day and like the, all the rebellion that happened and ultimately they all got reinstated because as yeah. I pointed out they're just guys dressing up in skirts and they were it was like the, the length was allowed right yeah. so like this absurd thing oh man yeah so skirts were rebellious man oh yeah especially in high school when like the rules were even stricter than I don't know what your college setting was with was I mean like a dress code college I can get away when there weren't many people doing it right. um, oh yeah but you for me, stood out oh yeah no I definitely stood out and the admissions counselors would walk past me sometimes and give me a look so when they're you, giving a tour um but in high school there were, i mean i don't think i think my high school would have had a similar reaction to your high school yeah and maybe more severe i think it was probably more conservative than your high school which is probably why i didn't feel <laughs> empowered to do any acting out just right. i wanted to get out of high school really <laughs> <laughs> so did you in that moment when you were trying this stuff out i mean that phase did that feel more authentic or less authentic mm. and and maybe one was in in the moment like you probably maybe you felt authentic but in retrospect i'm curious like how you view it no i've thought a lot about that um in the moment it definitely felt authentic i mean i understood why i was doing it It, you know being for our listeners out there i am not a towering hulking man (laughs) about five five maybe like a buck 35 So not an intimidating figure that I'm cutting across campus. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think it was a way to stand out and feel different, which I did some in high school in much more subtle ways, um, but also to mess with gender because it also made those guys that were the giant guys really uncomfortable. I'm sure, yeah. You know, just to walk past them or look at them. Um, yeah, they didn't know what to do with that. Oh, yeah. Um, so it felt empowering in that way. Um, and it felt very authentic. It was skirts and dresses are actually pretty damn comfortable uh, um, and so that was just fun to, to play with that and mess with that for a while and um, but after a while it it did start to feel like a performance and at that point it just kind of drifted away so it was it was authentic in the moment but I'm glad I didn't drag it out too long because it, it stopped feeling authentic right. and more yeah, I performative see, I definitely see some like like middle-aged punk people that I'm just like if, I mean, there are some that I think it is real, like legit love it, and, yeah. and that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. But there, there are definitely a handful that I see, and I'm like, you seem like you're you're just not interested. You're not in it anymore. <laughs> like, this isn't you. Like, you're just, it's a show, and it's still a show. Yeah. And then you get something out of it because you're still doing it. They must be. But, yeah. But I don't know if it's authentic at the same time. It's almost more just like, sometimes there's people, and I, I do this with aspects of my life, you're like, you just, you almost just want to rebel just because of like certain assholes that, just, oh yes, or so the opposite of that that you're just like I'm just gonna keep doing this to say f you to all those people, and if that's if I live 30 years like that just to keep saying f you to those people, <laughs> then maybe maybe that's what they want to do. Maybe they they feel like they're winning. Fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean if it fulfills them and they're they're happy with it, I guess good for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so how does this translate? Like this was mm. formative poet years. Yes. Right. Yep. So did you did you know then that you were going to be a poet, or were you still trying to figure it out in this process? I was pretty clear. I mean, I chose uh, I chose to go someplace college that had a undergraduate creative writing degree when they weren't as common. Okay. Um, so this was in the mid '90s, um, and there weren't a lot of choices at the time, and there were some around, but it wasn't nearly as common as, as it is now. So um, although I didn't tell my parents that's what I was going for <laughs> um, I made sure I chose a college that had that as an option in fact later on in my college career when I was majoring in creative writing I remember my mentor there talking to him during a, a one-on-one and he's like yeah so your mother called <laughs> and asked like what are you gonna do with the creative writing degree she was a little bit worried <laughs> <laughs> 
There was, yeah, you have that aspect of the yes. parents, right? Where they're just... I mean, they're practical. They want to make sure you're okay. I totally understood it then. Understand it even more intimately now. I think now I'm like, oh, man, if only my daughter is like a computer science major, this would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, yeah, they're pushing like STEM and STEAM and oh, yeah. all yeah. that stuff. Where you're, Yeah. And especially for, for uh, girls now, I feel like they're definitely pushing. They're underrepresented in those, yeah, mm-hmm. the science. Yeah, I mean, my, my wife uh, went to school mm-hmm. for engineering. Even though she didn't really feel like she was that great at it, didn't know like a whole lot about it, and mostly just wanted to go to school to row. But at the end of the day, she came out and she can like walk into these offices, and there's like two women. Yep. And even even in like she's now translated to like the sales end of it, but even in that aspect, I feel like she's still one of the few women. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. yeah. So that hopefully that's a good thing. But but yeah, it's 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 hard to be on the artsy side. Like I, I don't. I would I would feel pain if my my child did want to do art and I was like oh but you could make so much more money if you did this <laughs> like it's it's tough oh, yeah. especially when you when you have created like I wish in some ways that I had leaned into my my theater and like film mm. side more yeah because I only just took like elective classes I didn't even get a degree in it and I am doing architecture by the by day but like I I still know I love that. That's like the only thing I just keep going back, back to. to. Yeah. So obviously it's like something that's a passion more than any of these other things I'm working on. So should I have done that? Like just leaned into it, even though it maybe is not the degree that everybody thinks is awesome, or would I have been waiting tables and not necessarily been doing the? Th- you know, you yeah, can't. No, no can't there's this. The, there is no predicting. I mean, <laughs> no, I've, I've thought about those dynamics quite a few times. I mean, I did lean into it, getting the undergrad degree in creative writing and then going on to grad school right away and getting the MFA mm-hmm. as well. So I leaned into it, but I knew, I mean, I knew the whole time in poetry, like film, you might, you might make it, you know, there's a chance. It's yeah. a slim chance. One in like one in a, one in a million, but it's a chance. <laughs> but poetry. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm trying not to laugh, but yeah, you're laughing too. So it's yeah, okay. no making, making it, you know, it's, it's not even one in, it's one in 10 million. You can survive off. I mean, let's not even tell me in poets. I mean, that are making a living off of it. You have to teach. Mm. And that's mm. the only pathway for the 99.9% of poets to make a living. Right. They're um, like teaching poetry and yep. then happen to be releasing books and at I, the same time. And I dipped my toe into those waters and decided that teaching was not the path I wanted to take. Right. Um, it was an interesting path, but I wasn't willing to be an adjunct moving around the country um, for years and not have the stability that I wanted. So I think I leaned into art, but I always knew I was going to end up doing something else to make pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, both my grandfathers were doctors. My dad's a psychologist. Ooh, my, yeah. my uncle's a surgeon. So everybody thought I'd go to med school probably. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that too when I was in seventh grade. <laughs> there's always an artist in the, in the family yep. of doctors and lawyers. Yeah. So there's yep. always one that's like, no, this really isn't for me. Like I just, I just can't do it. No, and uh, yeah, I thought I was gonna go that way, and I was convinced. I convinced my seventh grade guidance counselor. She had me picking out like fast track pre med programs, and then a few years later, I was like, nah, <laughs> I'm gonna go write some poems and get my tongue pierced in Florida. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so a very different path in Florida. Okay, so at least now, now I know where that started. There. Yes. Yes. <laughs> is there a story with that, or is it just a bad story? Uh, um, wait, the tongue piercing or the... Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Not the, not the school. No, uh, I don't care about the education. <laughs> um, the tongue piercing... Um, oh, man. So I got to got to college, started dating a little bit, met someone I started dating. She had her tongue pierced. I was like... And she had her septum pierced, too. Um, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to get my tongue pierced. So I went home. I think it was... Oh, Christmas break, like winter break first semester back or first after my first semester of college benched my mom and she went no <laughs> of course and then my best friend who still lived up in the area in pittsburgh where i lived was back home for christmas uh we went down to pittsburgh i got my tongue pierced i came home and i'm like oh my god because <laughs> your tongue swells up quite a bit and she was like i don't want to see it <laughs> and she slowly accepted it she still didn't like it um you but, still every time you go home you take it out or no <laughs> not at this no time. i that's I've, gone. I've, I think it's been out of my mouth three times and oh, okay. since, since I was 18. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those are mostly for like dental or x-ray things. Right, so, right. Yeah. <laughs> you I don't go through it. the x-ray. Does it go, does it set off? If you nope. Through an no, x-ray? no, no, it doesn't set off the x-ray. You can get through okay. that just fine. Yeah. That's good to know for yeah. anyone who's interested in getting their tongue pierced. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Helpful hint. <laughs> By lots of Listerine. <laughs> Listerine. Yes. Ooh. 
What? Oh man, got sta- like, to sterilize. Yeah, how long did it take to like get back? Oh, to the, the the tongue is one of the fastest healing parts of the body. So it was probably only like a week to ten days that I remember until it was slightly till back to normal. But it took you about a month till you stopped biting it, right? Because like instinctively, you just like kinda... you, you just. I mean, you played with it for the first year, but then you'd occasionally bite on it as you move food from one side to the other, and right. that's why you chip teeth. But yeah, yeah. Okay, fun. Yeah, this is medical talk now on the uh, two-hit podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm sure I should call my wife down. She is. Uh, she's edited some medical textbooks, so she'd have <laughs> wonderful things to say about surgical textbooks, which would disturb you. Um, yeah, like the uh, – what's what's the place in Philly that has all the weird surgical oddities? Oh, the – Begins with an M. The – Mutter? Mutter Museum. Yeah, the edge yeah, of the Mutter Museum. Yeah. Yeah, is that like is something – Is it Mutter or Muter? Oh, maybe it's Muter. You're probably right. I, 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 I'm I've not, never heard it pronounced. I've just seen it written. No, I, yes. So Muter or Mutter Museum. I've heard both said, yes. I think. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's like Swarthmore. Swarthmore. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> but they're acceptable. But what's your preference? Um, but it's a fascinating museum in, oh, yeah. in Philly that everyone raves about, and I actually have not been to. Oh, you need to go. It's just like it's all medical oddities. And I went yes. to, years ago, I went to the uh, the body exhibit. Oh, yeah. And they would do that where you, you'd like see all the parts yep. of the body and you'd see like a very, very overweight person sliced and then you'd see like a super anorexic person. And so you got to see all the extremes and a bunch of like, you know, an athlete versus yep. someone pregnant and all these like sort of odd things. So I feel like it would fascinate me oh, you, to see you, like the medical oddities. You should definitely go. I mean, it is worth, it is worth going. There's this room with just just surrounded by skulls mm. i mean the place is incredibly creepy but so compelling and interesting and awesome um i mean you don't get that peek inside the body i mean it's kind of like remember like ripley's believe it or not mm-hmm. like the best parts of that in my mind right, right, <laughs> and the most right. disturbing gross but the most the thing you want to stare at you be like oh my god and yet you want to look closer. Yeah. There's a cathedral in, I don't know if it's Italy oh. or Spain or France, somewhere in Europe that has, that's like made of, of bones. Yes. And not just the crypt. I'm saying like the whole oh, place. Yep. No, I've seen the pictures. But and that yeah. is just mesmerizing and also like nightmarish at the same time. Yeah. But I'm fascinated, especially as an architect, like something that's built mm. out of bones. Like that's a complicated thing. Like, how do you how do you pull that off? Yeah, those don't necessarily have the best right angles or the. Yeah. No, and they definitely <laughs> don't have the best structural integrity, no, I, as I mean, you would think. Uniform shapes. I mean, there's gonna be a lot of variation there. You're yeah, not working with two by fours. <laughs> definitely not. Let's let's backtrack. Yeah, to yeah, the, off think, the medical uh, tangent yeah. there. We're involved in poetry. You you went for two. What, so where were you for the two degrees? I don't know if you've mentioned the school. Um, Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida, for undergrad. Okay, and then. Um, University of North Carolina at Greensboro for my MFA in uh, creative writing poetry. Okay. And um, did you feel like one was more impactful, one was more like the real you maybe, like a moment in your life? Um, well, I guess I, if we were talking about the, the sort of yeah. punk moment, that was undergrad it sounds like. Yeah, that was definitely mostly. undergrad. Yeah. Um, that said, I probably felt mm, a more wholly owned who I was in grad school. Okay. Um, you know, in college, you're trying a lot of personas on. Um, you're doing a lot of exploring, all, all good things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think by the time I got to grad school, I had a little better handle on who I was and what I wanted. Um, also, most of college, I had been dating someone there for all four years. And this was, we were still dating long distance, but we were separated. Mm. And I could live a little more independently um, without putting that person's needs before mine. I had an unhealthy idea of love at that point. A okay. little, little, little codependent. <laughs> that love was putting someone else's needs always above your own. Right. Um, and there's an element of that in love. But to do it consistently um, is just unhealthy. Yeah. Um, it can be a little daunting for both people on oh, abs- either end of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no one else should be responsible for your happiness. <laughs> um, important lesson I learned too late in life. Would like to learn that earlier. But it sounds uh, so simple, but that's a, yeah, that's very yep, good. Yes. Yeah. No one else. What was, how did you phrase it? No one else should be responsible, responsible for, for your, your happiness. happiness. Yes. Yes. That's good. Yeah. Very simple. But don't. Yeah. You don't necessarily need anyone else. Find what you want to be happy. Yes. And, I mean, you're responsible for that. Um, and so that separation did a lot of good for me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I could breathe a little easier and not focus on someone else and focus on myself and the people around me. Um, so I had, a, I had a really good time in grad school. It was it felt comfortable. Um, I had the opportunity to stay there longer after I graduated. There was a job offer that I turned down because I didn't think I wanted to live in North Carolina, even though I looked back fondly and love the people of North Carolina I was with. I'm glad I'm out there now. The state politics are a 
little disturbing. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, a little bit. But good people, great program. Um, I definitely enjoyed myself there. It was it was a really good two years of my life. You you were kind of talking about like always sort of discovering, and you specifically talked about college, like discovering who you are at mm-hmm. that moment. Do you feel like you're done discovering? You're, oh. you're just done for good now, or, or do you? Feel I mean, like it's an that would be kind of convenient in a way, <laughs> but probably pretty damn boring. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't think you can stop discovering. I mean, we're, you don't think that, but do, have you ever met anyone where you're like, they've they've stopped? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, you say that, and my immediate reaction was, yep, yep. I mean, and and, and not even I'm not hmm. I'm not even saying it as a as a critique hmm. necessarily. Some people like I've literally had people say to me like, i'm done i finished this mm. part of my life or i finished school mm. or i i have a house i have kids i got all this that everything's behind me i'm just chilling i'm just staying mm. as me this is me i'm happy as as this yeah. and I, and I, I can see some validity in that but it, it does seem a little questionable i definitely see validity in that i feel like i feel hints of that right now in life like mm-hmm. we got the kids and the job and we're stable and like okay do I want to rock the boat? You know, like, and but there's different ways of rocking the boat. You can do it small. I mean, you can quit your job and sell your house and travel around the world with your kid on a houseboat, you know. Right. Or you Seems can, like you've been Googling that recently <laughs> or something. <laughs> or you can take up meditation, you know, and go to retreat, you right. know, like, and still change your life in other ways. Um, but I, I mean, I'm somebody that definitely values stability. Um, and I know that about myself. That's one reason I couldn't teach, as I said before. That's um, one reason why I probably have a strong belief or for me that monogamy is the right choice (laughs) um it's the one reason i can't live the freelance life um i played with that a little bit but i want a steady paycheck um i want that stability because i didn't have some of that when i was growing up um so i think i'm compensating and that's Mm -hmm. that's what i need for myself and i know that about myself but that limits me in other ways right i'm not it limits you but i also find because I, I, you know, I'm similar mm-hmm. in that an architect is what I would call the most stable of mm. all the arts, like the the mm. sort of visual arts, I would say. Okay. And I'm literally I'm drawing every day. Mm. Yeah. I'm I'm doing a lot of similar sort of creative processes, and coming up with design concept, concepts, getting them shut down. Obviously, there's like <laughs> that back and forth, but then it's developing and you're creating new things, and it's a lot of like problem solving. But it's still like the most stable. Like you, you, you know, mm. I still have a paycheck coming in. There's still almost always a client, especially if you're working for a firm versus working, you know, and you're on your own as like just a standalone architect. And I actually think there's a, a woman who's done some TED talks, and she has a website called Putty Like. I, I forget her name. It's Emily something, but I can't remember her last name. It's a weird spelling. You can look it up probably. Uh, but my point, if you look up Putty Like, she has this whole thing where she talks about people called multi potentialites okay which is sort of like a new word for um i don't know what you would call them um poly polyglot is that the right oh, yeah. word okay or or someone who like a, rena- a renaissance man renaissance mm-hmm. woman whatever whatever you want to call it and this idea that uh when she was researching a book that she just did about multi-potentialite potentialites it's hard hard word to say i apologize um but when she was researching that she found that she came across architects more than any other profession huh and it's this kind of thing where, like, we feel driven to a lot of different things, but for some reason we settle on like the logical thing because it's it's stable mm-hmm. and paying. Like we we ha- we're this group that's very like has this fine line of logic, but is very artistic. Okay. And the logic is like underlying it, so we're trying to make it work in like the normal sort of nine to five world. Mm-hmm. And yet we want to really be artistic, but we can't necessarily just like lean into it as I was saying earlier we can't do that like 100% of the time and and I just find it fascinating like that the person that can just lean into that and just I, I, I'm always jealous of the artists who like really do it 100% and but at this, as you already pointed out like it's so difficult with some things like how do you ever it's got to take forever to get like a leg up in some, some oh, absolutely and the, the stats are against you you know like I think it's hard on your relationships mm-hmm. um both familial and romantic. I mean, if you have kids, that can be incredibly challenging as well. Yeah. Um, so, but you, but you were saying you specifically saw this this point in your life. Actually, it sounds like you even knew early on oh, kind of, that you were like, yeah. you were like, yeah, I, I, I know I'm going to want stability. That's just who I am. Yes, absolutely. And I'm still going to want that. So I'm okay with going for jobs. And you've obviously now built yourself up into a good career where you've been there for a while, and you have, you know, you have a position that you've built up. 
that now that would give you leverage if you, not that you want to move but that sure. if you wanted to move you could and you can also continue building up your career there and it's also built connections with um I imagine you can you can do like an adjunct something there, or maybe not adjunct, but you could probably step into a class. You could probably, if you wanted to, not not that you did, obviously. But my point is that you have like this access now. Mm-hmm. And but the other thing I was going to get at with all this, I had a point, and I went on a huge <laughs> tangent, which happens a lot on this podcast. I apologize, or maybe I'm not sorry for it. Um, <laughs> it's my secret mission is just to go on tangents every every episode. But my point was that. The benefit of having the stability is that now you can fund your dream. Yes. Like in some ways that I wouldn't have been able to do. Um, like with my, not necessarily my storytelling because that's not an expensive hobby. Um, but but like the plays, like I was able to, the last show I did, the uh, last two shows, I pretty much fully funded. And one of them happened to make a profit. One of them did not. But, the you know, the one where I made a profit, I'm like, oh, I made, a, yep. you know, I made money off of this. It was a gamble. Made money the other time. I didn't. But I still didn't lose like an arm and a leg. And at the end of the day, I had a day job. Yeah, didn't break you. Yeah, and yep. like, and especially now, once you have a family, there's a whole much more on the line, and it's so hard. Yeah, so hard. Like I completely understand why years ago people said like to kind of find yourself before having kids. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, how the hell do you do that? Like, there's there's so many things that I found out about myself by having kids. Oh yes, that. I never understood what busy really was. <laughs> I always said I was busy, and I hear I hear college yep. kids say they're busy to me, mm-hmm. and I I I acknowledge it and I accept it. Like relatives, friends, whoever says it to me, I'm like, okay, sure, and I just I won't I won't give them a response. Nope. But in my head, I'm like, you are not busy. <laughs> there is no way you actually are as busy as me. And maybe that's very arrogant to say. But like, I, no, I'm convinced that they're not. I mean, you're a parent. Oh, you yeah. understand. Like, it, what are you doing at 3 a.m.? Are right. you up? <laughs> you are, not, are you changing the sheets? <laughs> I mean, literally today, the entire day, I didn't, I, until I came over here, until I was walking out my door to come here, that was the first moment today. And that was, it was, a, we're doing this interview at 8.30 at night. Yep. And that was the first time I was alone. Yes. The whole day. First yeah. time. Yeah. I believe you. Oh, Where I was, or, or, or not even necessarily like not alone, but just not doing something for my family or for my kids, yep. like just keeping things rolling. Yep. And and then talk about how tired you are in that moment, especially with the young young kids. You know, oh. kids under five, especially. I feel like yes. just exhausting, but all kids. But just like then trying to do something creative after all that. It's like, are you kidding me? How do you how do you swing all that? For a while, I was just really driven. I would get up early in the morning. And right, that's kind of trailed off mm. since my last my book got picked up. Right now, my wife and I trade off one night a week where we each have a writing night. My wife's also a writer and poet. And so, you know, after dinner, you know, one of us heads upstairs and writes and the other does the cleanup, makes lunches, mm-hmm. plays with the kid, gets ready for bed, reads, puts her to bed, and then just kind of leaves the other one to do their creative work um, and in our office and we try to do that once a week um, to trade back and forth and so we each you know i'll do tuesday she'll do thursday or whatever it works Mm -hmm. out that week depending on our schedule so and is it is it like a good it's like a solid chunk like how much time i mean it can be anywhere from um like 6 6 30 to 10 but i'd say average it's probably 7 to 10 okay yeah on average yeah Um, it's a decent amount yeah no i mean it's a good I mean, three hours is a pretty good chunk of time. I mean, yes, it, it, in like, a day, especially when you're a parent. Again, yes, yes, <laughs> like an amazing amount of time. Oh, I mean, time confetti is what I we read in this book last year about how your time gets chopped up oh, into all yeah. these little time pieces and how you stay so busy and yet so little of it is moving you forward. Right, um, it's just kind of keeping up on the treadmill. And creatively, I feel like it's just yeah, it's really hard to keep going back. Especially, I mean, I literally have a. a a website where I do projects called every week for a year. And all I'm trying to do is just get an hour a day on something, which ends up being seven a week. Okay. Nice. Which is an insane amount. And I'm, I'm yeah. not succeeding right now because okay. I'm doing the podcast. <laughs> and so I, I just had to switch priorities and yeah. I'm also doing the storytelling. So like at any given time though, something drops. Yep. Like I'm just not going to be good at this thing. I put the episode out late or something, you know, it just, something has to falter Yes. when you have the family f- comes first sort of going on. And especially if you care about your significant other, you know, then, then oh. you're, you're trying to give them time. You yes. want your relationship to have time because that has to happen. And as a parent, that like you wouldn't – to anyone listening who doesn't have kids yet, like you wouldn't think that's – especially oh. the ones that are in a relationship or you've been married for a few years and you're like, 
we really communicate well. Yeah, no shit. Like you should. Yes. <laughs> but but like add add the chaos of kids in the mix. Oh man. I and mean, you start to realize every little thing and like th- things become pet peeves so much <laughs> so much easier because it, you just over and over go like repetition of these little little oh. things. It's I mean for me having kids definitely puts a strain on your relationship because you don't have the emotional or intellectual energy to commit to that any longer. And before like, Oh, it was so easy, but it still took some effort. Now when you're getting the time for that, I mean, you're dedicating all that energy to a small person and you're suffering from decision fatigue. Cause you got to make a thousand decisions that relate to them every day. Mm-hmm. They're pushing you and arguing with you and you have to figure out how to navigate that. And then you have a conflict with your spouse, you know, whatever, you know, it could be something small, but you're like, I can't deal with your emotional energy now because the emotional energy of this little person is sucking up all I can deal with and I'm trying to stay calm. And right. <laughs> I got like nothing left for you at the end of the night sometimes. Um, so it, it, it really is challenging. And then to choose your creative work over your relationship, mm. um, you have to have a very understanding spouse. You have you can't always do that because if you neglect the relationship, you're going to you're gonna pay the price and pay it big. Um, and maybe that'll fuel your creative work with your, your angst. And, yeah. Um, yeah. How, actually, how do, like, if that happens, if you're just drained on that night where, like, you were going to write something mm-hmm. and you, you were just, like, mentally drained, how do you even start writing in that situation? Because I've had those moments, too. Oh, man. Um, so some days I, I do throw in the towel and I'm just like, honey, um, I'll help with the kid tonight. I got nothing. Can I take, can I take the writing night? <laughs> I don't tom- have the mental energy. I'm like, I'm like, can I take the writing night tomorrow night? You know, like <laughs> yeah. it's a Thursday. I'm like, can I do it Friday? And she's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> um, other times I'll switch and like, I mean, I take a lot of photographs and so I'll do, I'll do some like something else creative, but still a little more mindless, like editing photos. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and so that still feeds some creative outlet, but it's a little more rote at the same time. Mm, mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have to use quite the same energy. So sometimes I'll do that as a stopgap. Um, but mostly when I want, still want to get into it, but I feel like, shit. Um, I usually read. I mean, I read other poets. Um, and yeah. usually that'll spark something eventually. Or I'll go back and look at really old work. Then I'm like, oh, this is probably shitty. But then I'll find two or three lines. And there's no... <laughs> it's setting the bar really low in those days. Like... The stakes are so low. I'll mess with this thing. You know, maybe nothing will happen. But I was, it wasn't going anywhere anyways. Right. So if something happens with it, oh, excellent. You know, I I got a few lines out of that, or I made yeah. something out of it. But do you feel like, like once you get in the weeds, I, at least I feel this way. Like I feel like that gets the momentum. Yes. Going right. I mean, it's all about getting the momentum going. And That's the hardest. Do, thing usually, with have writing. to trick myself to get the momentum going. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I I barely sit down. I'm just like. I'm going to start writing now. Usually I have to go back to some piece I already started mm-hmm. and work on that. And then either it'll spin off to something else or generate another idea. And then I can start the brand new thing. Right. It's refreshing um, to hear this actually. Cause yeah. I don't think Alex was on the, Alex Coulomb was on the podcast and he is a writer, but he does a lot of other things. And that, well, that, we didn't even really talk about that, but it, it's nice to talk to another writer. Cause I feel like, like it's a, it's a similar process. I mean, everybody has their different ways of going about it, but I'm always curious about how like, what that that moment is like how you force yourself like i i have um on the train i just know i have a 40 minute window so i'm like i gotta do something and i just sit there and i will just force myself to come up with something but i actually find my my trigger is similar to what you're saying like editing something existing helps Mm -hmm. because then you're like oh well i don't like this thing and before you know it you're like well i could build that a little bit more and it becomes something a little more tangible or maybe an entirely separate thing and the other thing that I find is works for me is I, if I switch the the medium in which I'm writing, mm. like if I go from computer to a okay. printout yep. and I'm like writing on the printout, something about the paper in front of me, I will mark it up. I'll bleed all over that page. <laughs> and then suddenly I have a billion ideas. And I'll when I go to type those ideas into the computer, inherently that expands yep. into the next level. It's not just what I wrote. It's I'll be like, oh, well, there's a bigger thing here and I can expand this. So, But by doing that back and forth, back and forth, mm. I found over the years that I've sped up my process mm, by nice. doing that. And that's like, I just, I finally found the thing that was just constantly working when everything else was hit or miss more. And that was, that's the one thing that I know in all bad situations, no matter how like little my mental energy is on a given day, this will work. If I just 
print it out or switch media, you know, go back go and back forth. Go back and forth, yeah. yeah whatever yeah. you were doing before, do the, the, do the, opposite. the opposite. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Yeah. So that's, that's, um, these, this is a, the yeah, writer's, yeah. writer's room. Yeah, yeah no, the, uh, <laughs> I mean, seeing things on the page is a very different than seeing it on the computer screen. It's, right. a, it's a very different experience, and I think your, your brain processes it differently. Right. And, you're, you know. and I think we were, and maybe this is very like a um, sort of of our time, because I, I do find that people mm. just younger than us are more like into the digital 100%. Yes. And I, I was like right on the tail end where I was still I needed to print things like that was an yeah. actual thing you needed to do. And so it just, it felt like part of the process and maybe that's just what happened. Like when I learned mm-hmm. how to write, that just was part of the process and I didn't realize it until later that that was kind of what was the trigger, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there is a little generational divide there. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't, I wasn't emailing papers to my professors. I was printing them out, right. you know, going to the computer lab and hitting print or printing in my room. And yeah. And something about seeing it, then you, you do catch things. Oh yeah. You absolutely catch yeah. things. It's, it's great for editing. I mean, I don't think you should ever edit without printing out in my opinion. Right. And I think for architecture, there's, um, mm. there's a similarity there actually, because at the same around the same mm. time, there was a lot of people that were proponents of ha- learning hand drawing mm-hmm. before you really get in the weeds on the computer. Okay. And a lot of the schools up until we were still in school, and I think they did it for a few years after, but at this point they might be all digital freshman year, mm. which is kind of weird to me to just not even start yeah. with hand drawings because there's so much you learn about that process. And then to go back into it, you print things out, yep. you see it versus just always living in the screen. Mm-hmm. And then you, at the end of the day, you print when like the final presentation happens, or sometimes now a lot of schools won't print because it does waste a lot of paper, which I yes, understand. Yes, true. Sustainability, but, but they'll project, but then they will they will have never seen it printed out, huh. which is a little bit it's huh. it, it's sort of difficult to the process. Like you're not refining it the same way. There's a lot of little subtle things that you're not changing because you never sort of saw it at a tangible scale. You know, there's something very visceral about holding the words or mm-hmm. the drawing in your hand, I think is different than looking at them on the screen. Right. Right. Yeah. I really do think our brain processes them a little differently and, and maybe even physically, you know? Yeah. So now you've, you've published two books. One was like a, a chapbook. Yep, first one's a chapbook. I don't know if everybody knows what a chapbook is. Can you articulate sure. what that is? <laughs> so a uh, chapbook in the poetry world is essentially a short book of poems, <clears throat> usually under 40 pages, sometimes under 36, um, sometimes under 30, just depending on the the publisher. Um, but essentially a, a short book of poems, not a full-length collection. Okay. But it could be one one author. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's it, almost always one author. Okay. Yeah. So that's yeah. different than like, you know, an, an anthology, anthology or a book yep. that a lot of people are contributing and it's edited by someone and kind of comes together as one book. Now you've done a lot of those you've contributed to, right? You know, yeah, I've been in some anthologies as well. Yeah. Okay. And then that, was it pretty chronological that built to the chat book and then you did a couple more anthologies and then now that built to your next I book? I mean, the anthologies are just kind of random. When you can get into sort of something? I mean, yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, or maybe you have one idea that's like very standalone and you don't feel like it fits a theme. Yeah. I mean, if there's an anthology about something that you've got a poem for, you'll send it in. Other times people are just looking for poems and they know your poem fits this theme mm, okay. or it's... Oh, so you've gotten like, or like they read it from one of your your books and yep. they're like, oh, I read this. We think it fits this anthology. Yep. Can we include it? Or there's it? a magazine that is putting in the anthology of, you know, their last 10 years worth of stuff and they're picking the highlights mm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's anthologies are kind of a different beast. Um, and so like I kind of think of those separately. I mean, in the poetry world, I mean, most people are focused on journals and magazines in right. terms of publications and you build up enough of those until you have enough for a chat book okay. and the chat book around um and then from there you can kind of do full books at this point which is now what you've done yep exactly and that's yep. um tsunami diorama correct which i i think is an awesome title even though every time i say it i almost want to say diarrhea <laughs> oh. i apologize but that sounds pretty bad too tsunami that diarrhea. that that would that's when you eat too many of those really bad gummy bears on it <laughs> I, yeah i didn't want to tell you that when, yeah. when you when i saw the title I was like, <laughs> that was the first thing that popped in my head but i read it and it's not about cool. tsunami diarrhea it's about a lot of complicated stuff Mostly relationships and love, I feel like. But I'm curious. We, you know, we've been talking a lot about authenticity here, and you know, mm-hmm. in, in pieces of what we're talking about in the creative process. So I'm curious with this specific process and this specific book. Maybe you can give examples mm-hmm. of. How, do you feel like it's the most authentic version of you, just like spilling onto a page, or do you feel like it's still a mask? There's still a layer there. Um, and you could give specific examples. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm like, so, I mean, there's a number of ways to address that question so i would say on in the moments i was writing them and revising them Mm -hmm. um they felt very authentic 
most of them. That said, there is the emotional authenticity and then the literal authenticity. Um, the character in the poem may share my emotional authenticity, but does not necessarily share my authenticity in terms of our literal situations do not mirror each other. Right, right. Um, so that speaker, um, you know, is an extension and imagination of characters inside me, say, yeah. um, or, you know, the multiplicity of I. <laughs> um, but so the emotional authenticity, I think, was definitely there. That said, by the time the book came out, some of those poems were 10 years old. Hmm. Um and I'd kind of moved on to the next, working the next poems, the next oh, books. Okay, I was yeah. a father. So the the speaker in those poems, while an authentic me from a previous time period, no longer felt like me in quite the right. same way as they did a few years previously. Yeah. Um, I still had a connection with them. I was still proud of them, but they also felt like a different person. Yeah. Uh, I uh, They're very open to interpretation, I would say. It's not yep. like... It's not a uh, like I wouldn't say it's a literal. You know, nope. you're not naming names, and there's not there's not like a, it's not like a literal tale. And poetry, I feel like, is open to interpretation, mm -hmm. and it can be there's different styles of writing, obviously. But I think I still got the vibe of some intense relationships. Oh yeah, and different moments in relationships, good and bad. And I was like, yes, woo, yeah, man. I I could tell from this moment. I was like, this something really intense went on here, and I don't know specifically what it was. But you can, yeah, you can definitely read that. But obviously, I know that that um, it, at least it didn't feel like it was. It, even, yeah, that's weird. Actually, I, I was about to say I didn't know for sure if it was about your wife, but it could have been. But um, but for some reason, it didn't feel like it was. And now that you're saying this, it's kind of like reassuring what I was thinking as I was reading. I was like, for some reason, I don't feel like this is about you know Roxanne or Freya. Like it didn't didn't necessarily feel like well, there was none in this. This last one you really um, I'm trying to think if I mean there might have been one or two lines that infiltrated nothing really from Freya okay. um, for my daughter because um, as you've said this is like something you built up over time yes, this yeah, isn't like this you was just, a this was a like, long, oh I'm gonna write a whole book overnight and then publish yeah, it it was a yeah. long process I mean it came close to being published many 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 times I mm. think 27 times Ooh. it was a finalist or semi-finalist for book contests nice um this is, this is great to know for people who write oh, this nice. is the struggle this is the struggle no it, it, this is good nice but I mean that's that's a lot of no I think that's actually like I've heard people say hundreds yeah. for, for some some submissions for different oh no forms I mean writing hundreds of submissions just being a finalist or oh, oh that's just the finalist oh just wow. finalist okay. or semi-finalist yeah. in, in various contests so um, <laughs> it was close for so long oh, man um which was great you know a lot of validation but also at some point you're just like i gotta i gotta let this go and not <laughs> not let the the bridesmaid thing you know get to you right um, right <laughs> so you've got to distance yourself um a little bit yeah and you um, at this point now so there's a lot of overlap where this is like you're pushing this but you were still writing a lot of new stuff at that point yes, probably yeah, which yeah. has been more in like uh, yeah, infused with things the, from your the family. new stuff is much more domestic and yeah, dealing with domestic it makes it sound tame, which I doubt it is. But no, I mean, but it, it more isn't related tame, to but, your but, life. I mean, there's also, I mean, I feel like there aren't a lot of books about a lot of books of poetry about fatherhood that deal with it in a darker, uncertain way. You know, <laughs> the, 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 I mean, there's a, you know, there's a lot of love there, but parenthood is hard. I mean, yeah. like it's it's you go to some pretty dark places early on. Mm -hmm. I mean, when mm -hmm. you're just alone with that kid and sleep deprived and you're like, Ooh, what man. have I done to my life? And this just sucks right now. And, you know, I'm having horrible thoughts about you, child. And, you know, like it's it's natural. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, it's it's I mean, it's emotional terrorism really on the child's part. <laughs> I remember thinking when I was so sleep deprived, I was just like, you know, like I understood why sleep deprivation was a military torture technique. I, I literally was about to say the same thing. Yeah. Like in Chinese water torture seems like a picnic yeah. compared to all night with your kid crying, none of the solutions working, no, no. medicines, no, no teething, no. anything, nothing is working. And that kid is still up yeah. every five seconds. You put a pacifier in, they pass out. A second later, they, it's across the room. You're digging for it in like half darkness. You're trying not to wake up the other kid, and like this whole time, just yeah, you, you hate your life. You oh, hate man. the world at those moments. You're so frustrated. And you're like, I, yeah. I don't want to care about anybody but myself right now. Yeah. So does um, anybody want to become a parent now? <laughs> no, just it's it's really just, I mean, just that you should think about it. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. No, There's I mean, lots of positives, obviously, on the other side of this. Th there are. Chaos. I mean, I think I've described it as being a parent is 
just, I mean, it's just like the rest of life, just compressed and way more intense. Right. Um, <laughs> it, you know, like you, there's ups and downs, but they just happen so many more times during the day. Yes. Um, in your normal day-to-day life and you experience them with a small person. So mm. both the, both the joys and the sorrows. Um, there's, there's a literal study. I think I might've mentioned it to you a while back at, uh, UCDC a long yep. time ago, which is a, a church that we go to occasionally. And we were talking there about when you reach like up to 20 in your 20s mm-hmm. age, you actually are at the like at that point, you've reached one of the more successful points in your life up until that point, mm-hmm. obviously. And yet that's when you reach like your lowest excitement about things. Mm-hmm. Like you're the least excited <laughs> because you're so successful, oh. relatively speaking, sure. at that point in your life. And you don't have like your ups and downs just don't exist anymore. Mm. It's just very flat. Line. Even doubt. Okay. Yeah. So you, you don't have a lot of like spikes as you pointed out. Mm. There, this is like an actual study to validate what you're saying. And then they compare that to when you have kids, when you're, and when you're a little older, even though it's chaotic, the, the ups and downs, especially with kids, like the, it's just so all over the place, but you feel so much more satisfaction because you have some days that are so low <laughs> that you, by comparison on yes. the days that are just amazing, where like, you know, where a kid has this mental leap or yep. where they have some moment or some emotional connection that's just out of this world. You can't imagine how this kid can say certain things yeah. and like just blows your mind. Um, and those moments happen. You're just like, something's working. <laughs> like, or something that validates you as a parent too on top yes. of that and like cuts to your core. Ugh. Uh, make good decisions. Yes. Yeah. Everything yeah. Good <laughs> so, like, when you hear that, it just, yeah. There's a lot more. It's a lot more of a roller coaster. But yes, roller coasters are more fun than just a flat line train, right? Where like, yes, nothing's going up and down. Yeah. yeah. No. And I think, I mean, going back to about stability, I think that's one reason I value stability right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because by, con- by contrast, yes, the emotional roller coaster is you know, and the life roller coaster in terms of just day to day is is so much more chaotic that. It's nice to have some stability in other areas of life. Yes, yes. Um. <laughs> okay, well, on, on that note, let's stabilize for a second. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, we're winding down to the two, end of the two-hit podcast. But um, before we get to the final question, do you have a donation you'd like to talk about? Donation directions. Directions on where and how to donate your donations for those interested i would uh encourage you to go visit vday.org um, if you want to donate vday.org slash donate um vday is a global activist movement um, to end violence against women and girls um, it was founded by eve ensler who started and wrote the vagina monologues so really fascinating uh, nonprofit that does a lot with the arts you know acting as well um but a really uh really compelling cause. I grew up volunteering at a women's shelter. My mom was on the board. Um, so issues of domestic violence and violence against women, they're definitely close to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still far, far too much of it happening. So um, for those of who you who feel inclined and passionate about it, I would encourage you to, to check it out. And if you feel inspired to uh, make a gift, whatever's meaningful to you. Great. Thank you. Yeah, we'll, we'll include that uh, link as always and, and all the information. We're going to wind it down with one final question. I'll put you on the spot here. What would be your words of wisdom to people of all ages that are listening about how they can live their most authentic life? Mm. It's a harder question than it should be. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'm just going to freestyle here, but I would say don't overthink it. <laughs> Get to know yourself. Um I mean, I think that's so crucial and get to know yourself. That means the good things you're passionate about and the places where you need to work on and grow and where you've got some soft spots and, uh, you know, know when you're reacting to something because it's, you know, an issue you have rather than someone else. Um, most times when people are upset or pissy or doesn't agree with you, I mean, a lot of times it's not about you. Um, I think realizing so little is actually about you when other people have issues and not taking it personally <laughs> yes. um, can actually help you get to your own authentic life because you don't take their judgment as personal. Um, and when you stop worrying about their judgment, you can start worrying <laughs> about your own mm-hmm. and, you know, how to how to view yourself in a balanced way um, and, you know, hopefully live a 
a healthy emotional life. Um, I mean, I'd say make connections with other people. It's hard to do. It's not something I necessarily excel at. I wish I was better at it. But yeah, mostly it's not about you um, when other yeah. people have issues and, and get to know yourself because it's, it's, it takes a long time to get to know yourself and you got to keep, keep asking those questions, keep learning and yourself changes. And you know yourself for a while and then suddenly you're someone else mm-hmm. um, and you need to keep moving forward to realize that. Um, yeah, good luck with all that. I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thank you again. Uh, wonderful having you on, Fritz. Yeah, thank, thank you, Danton. It was wonderful uh, talking with you tonight. I'm glad you could uh, voyage up the street. And uh, Yes, yes. It's a long journey, by the way, for everyone <laughs> listening. This has been literally the easiest episode I had to record. <laughs> Just like walk down on a nice night down to my neighbor's house. Easy. Yeah, Three-block commute home. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. So wonderful. Thank you again. To all the, the listeners, thank you for listening as always. You can follow on facebook.com slash 2hippodcast, uh, Twitter at 2hippodcast. And just go to the website, twohippodcast.com slash subscribe. And if you have comments, feedback, guest recommendations, questions, segment or topic recommendations, please send me a message, twohippodcast.com slash contact or twohippodcast at twohippodcast.com. A lot of twohippodcast things in there. You can figure it out. All right. So thank you again. I appreciate it. This has been the Two Hip Podcast. Mm-hmm.